Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. And I ended up in a private facility. They introduced me to trauma therapy and what trauma was, and and I didn't fit in there either. Honestly, you just you just did pills. You you're not an addict. You're not you're not one of us. You. You're one of those that think they have a problem, but don't. My guest today is named Ashley Grimes. She is the NAMI Florida president and a person living in long-term recovery from co-occurring mental health and substance use disorders. She is also a co-host on Recovery Revolution Live. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you on, and uh, I've been been trying to get you on this show. and And for the for those of you that don't listen to the Recovery Revolution live show, Ashley is one of the new co hosts. She started out as a fill in for Jr. and she is going to become a permanent member of the Recovery Revolution live show. So excited to have you on today. Um, hopefully, the listeners get to know a little bit more about Ashley and. Um, kind of build that connection with you and get to learn more about you. So glad to have you on. Well, thank you for having me. And if you guys don't listen to recovery revolution live, you'd need to. So add that to your schedule, add it to the list. Yeah. And we're going to be moving to Thursday nights actually right after this episode airs. So that'll be tomorrow. Uh, the first Thursday night episode will be happening at 7 PM central, 8 PM Eastern. So Tune in on Facebook on the Recovery Revolution Facebook page or search Recovery Revolution Live on YouTube and you can find our new YouTube channel and you can watch us live. It's going to be a good time. And Grey's Anatomy is not on, so you don't have any excuse. <laughs> yeah, so if you, would, if you wouldn't mind, maybe introduce yourself for those that aren't familiar with you and, um, and tell us a little bit about Ashley Grimes. Well, my name is Ashley Grimes and I'm a person in long-term recovery. And to me, that means that I haven't put a narcotic or a substance not given to me by my doctor in almost five years. I'm a big advocate for recovery schools, recovery-friendly workplaces. I'm passionate about too many things to mention. I have just too much passion. I hear that. Yeah, it seems like you're always busy working on some kind of project and you always have your hands in something recovery related. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, maybe you could kind of take us back and, and tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got into using, you know, what, what first brought you into that world of, of, of drugs and where you went from there. You know, the more I think about my past and, and 
I normally start by saying that my story started when I fell over a baby and got an injury. That's not really where it started. When I was younger, I battled like weight issues as a kid. Um, and you'd go and try things on and that makes you look chunky or that makes, you know, and it, it, I developed self-esteem issues. And, you know, I came from a very religious family, very like, you had to fit inside a box um, and be a certain way. Um, you couldn't wear your holy jeans to church. Like our church, you could wear jeans, but not for Christmas. You wore a dress for Christmas. Um, Easter, you wore a dress and, and there wasn't any like ill intentions. It was just how it was. And I just didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. Um, I was moved to gifted classes and the kids in gifted had been together since kindergarten. And I joined them when I was in sixth grade. And I wasn't interested in the same things they were. I wasn't super interested in science or, I mean, I liked, I loved to learn and I loved to read, but it was just different. Um, and I hadn't been raised with them since kindergarten. So like I was behind, even though like IQ wise, I was equal or probably above a lot of them. I just didn't. I was behind because academically I hadn't been in those based classes. And so you get changed from everyone, you know, and back then the gifted school, like it was a whole different, you had to go to a different school and they would normally put it in a neighborhood that wasn't so great. So I had to change schools from all my friends, go to a school in a bad neighborhood and be around people I didn't know and I didn't fit in with. And then I wanted to fit in. So there was, you know, this one girl in my classes and she was the only one that was really welcoming at all. The girls hated me because they'd been around these boys since kindergarten. They had like ownership and here was a new girl and they were really worried about that. So most of the girls were mean and then the boys were not interested in girls at that time, really. They wanted to play sports or do something science related. So it was just, it was hard. Well, she was the rebel. She brought vodka to school and she'd bring it in a water bottle. I didn't drink. I didn't even like the taste of it. But I got to the point where I would just keep a, a vodka in a water bottle on, on my desk just so that I could feel like I fit in. Like just so I was like in solidarity or the same as somebody else. So looking back, that was probably a red flag. And then in high school, um, I joined Color Guard and Color Guard became my life. But we had to wear a leotard on football, like, you know, for the football games. And so I started running a mile a day, rollerblading seven miles a day and doing laps in the pool at home. And then I went to drinking a slump fast shake with a half of a bag of Cheerios. And that's what I ate every single day because. You know, I'm five foot nine and it you know, I had self-confidence issues and self-esteem issues. And so, I mean, at that point it wasn't substances, but there was definitely red flags and definitely, I guess you could call them like addictions to behaviors and addictive behaviors. We'll rewind a little bit. 
So when I was 11, um, my dad passed away. And, you know, there was some stuff that I saw right before he passed away that I didn't deal with for a really long time. After high school, I had a full scholarship to go to USF in Tampa. And I got to school and, you know, I told my mom about the stuff that I saw and how hard it was and, you know, dealing with your dad. It's, and he never got a chance to tell me the truth or, so it was like, I felt like I had to protect this image of that he was this perfect person that did never mess up and had to hide the things I saw so I could never deal with them because how mean is it to question or to ruin someone's character that's no longer here? And like, I completely lost it in college after I told her it was like, everything fell apart. And, you know, it was started, we started dating and it was just became obsessed to relationships at that point. And then I really was into someone we dated for like a year and he ended things and I met my, which would later be my husband. And, you know, I got pregnant with my first daughter four or five months into the relationship and dropped out of school, tried to do the, you know, the life that I thought I wanted, the family, the, that whole thing. And, you know, I was pregnant and not married and that was a big deal in my family. So I ended up getting married and I wasn't what he needed in his life and he wasn't necessarily what I needed in my life. And we both tried and we both had great intentions, but we were really damaging for each other. And um, when my second daughter was five months old, I fell over a baby gate and shattered my elbow. And in three years, um, sorry, in a year and a half, I had three surgeries. And um, after the first surgery, like the pain medicine, I mean, I took it a couple days and was done with it. Um, the second surgery was a little longer. After the third surgery, it, I didn't stop. And it numbed not only like, it didn't numb the pain. It just made me not care that I was in pain, physical or emotional pain. And um, it was a hard recovery. I mean, I, I had a metal thing on my arm and I had to adjust it. Like, you know how they used to do the braces? I don't know if they still do, but they would like tighten this, a key thing. No, there, well, I'm not familiar with that style. Okay. Well, this brace was the same thing. You tighten it to make your arm like be able to straighten more because, because I'd had so many surgeries, even though I'd had therapy after them, I was locked in a, like a 45 degree angle and they didn't know if I'd ever get the supination back from like rotating my hand or be able to fully straighten. And it was really, really painful because it was muscles atrophy when you can't fully straighten. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we ended up, my ex's dad offered him a job in Texas. And, you know, he said, well, you can stay, stay home and, you know, take care of the kids and you won't have to work. 
I worked full time during the whole thing. I mean, I took off right after the surgeries, but otherwise I still worked and had two kids, you know, under the age of two. Um, so he was, you know, gonna give us a house and he was gonna make $70,000 a year. And, you know, I was gonna stay home and, you know, all of our problems were gonna be solved because we, you know, we had issues because I, I made more than him and then I had the insurance and I, you know, couldn't take off very long because, you know, it was just, so all of our problems were going to be solved when we went to Texas. Very young and naive. So we went to Texas and the money didn't last because I was supplementing with buying pills. He was gambling and the money didn't last. So, you know, I went back to work and was a, a retail store manager. And, you know, it was a pretty physical job and we'd unload trucks and all kinds of stuff. So take more pain medicine and then I'd have to buy more to supplement. and. I mean, at the end, I was taking between 25 and 30 hydrocodone a day. And there was like times in there that I would go to oxycodone. Um, I didn't really like oxycodone because opiates actually make me puke. So every time I would like take them, I'd, I'd actually puke, but I still kept doing it. So... Oxycodone made me puke a lot more, so I tried to avoid it. In 2016, I tried to commit suicide after I'd asked if I could go to treatment. And my husband told me that if I went to treatment, that he would consider that I'd left him and left our kids and not to come back. So, you know, I thought I would lose my family if I went to treatment, so I didn't. Eventually, I got to the point where I, was, I couldn't, I didn't want to live like that anymore. And, um, you know, the officers that responded, they said, you know, we can let you go to, um, it was essentially a mental hospital. Either you can voluntarily go or we can make you go. Um, we would rather you voluntarily go. And I was just like, all right, let's go. So we went and the things I saw there, it was horrible. It was just, I mean, people, if they were acting out, it was a shot. Like it was, it was a joke that, nope, that person's going to get a shot, a shot for you, a shot for you. And oh, no shot for you. I mean, it's sad that that was the joke for people. And, you know, I stayed there for about five days and then I ended up going to a state treatment facility voluntarily. Um, and my mom found out about the suicide attempt and um, she came and visited and looked around the state facility and she's like, you're not staying here. Let's go. Let's get on a plane. I'll take you to Florida and we will go. I will find you somewhere, but you, you can't stay here. And that was my experience with a state rehab facility. So went to Florida. 
and I ended up in a private facility that my mom paid for with cash. And it was a completely different thing. There was massages, there was equine therapy. It was nine day difference. And they introduced me to trauma therapy and what trauma was. And and I didn't fit in there either, honestly. I, I you know, oh, you just you just did pills. You you're not an addict. You're not you're not one of us. You you're one of those that think they have a problem but don't. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. So you know, I was there for 28 days and ended up. You know, you feel so much better after 28 days, and you think you're cured, and you're never going to be that one that you know, relapses or you're, it's not going to be you, you know, they tell you the stats about it's going to be, you know, look around the room in a year, you know, this amount. Nope, not me. Relapse is part of recovery. Nope, not part of my recovery, not part of my story. So I went back to Texas and, you know, the same people, same stresses, nothing changed about home. And it hadn't been enough time for me to change. And you know, I lost my best friend and it put me down a really, really bad path. And it was, I mean, I shouldn't have lived through the experience I did. I mean, if the amount of pills that I took, somebody wanted me to be here. And that's the only explanation I can tell you is why I'm still here. And it just made me realize that it wasn't a service to her for my life to end too. That what was a service to her life is to do something with my life that would honor her and that would honor the loss of her. And through making her death matter, then it would be able to make me remember her life more, make not make it matter more because that's not a good way to and it's not an accurate way of making me feel, but if I didn't make a difference for people that struggled with the same things that she struggled with, then it felt like her death was for nothing. I, I wanted I wanted to make a difference for somebody and I didn't know how then. I started out not even working for a while, you know, because it took probably a year to to start working. And then, you know, I started a, a temp agency a little while after that. And um, when COVID happened, um, I decided, well, you know, everybody else is quitting school and afraid of what's going to happen. And let me just go back to school. I, I never did what everybody else did anyway. So in a year, I finished um, my bachelor's of science in project management. Um, during that time, I got my certified associate in project management from PMI, and then later um, got my PMP, which is project management professional, and, and it's a global certification. I went and became a peer specialist um, in Florida, a certified recovery peer specialist. You have to do 40 hours of training. It's professional training in ethics and motivational interviewing and those kinds of things. And you have to have 500 hours of on-the-job training, which I didn't have at the time. So I applied for a provisional, but I've gotten them through volunteering, which is, let me tell you, 500 hours when you're volunteering is a lot. 
was hired full-time with my company. Um, so now I'm a full-time employee and have been for two years in August. I graduated last June, like I said, with my bachelor's. And now I'm in school for my master's in business administration. And was looking into different things. Um, family support has become a big deal to me too. Um, because I've gotten a lot of healing from working with other families and it, I don't I don't know what the correlation between you know, somebody that has lived through it and then a family member that has lost somebody. But there is there's been so much healing on both ends. I feel like I have, you know, five or six additional moms. You know, I, I know that I feel a void that they have. It's not it doesn't replace who they lost, but it's just an additional support and someone that understands. And so I started looking for family support and, you know, found NAMI and that's where my journey, you know, cause I, mental health is huge. It's, I realized that when I'm not in a good place mentally, my immune system fails me. When I was in active addiction, I had blood sugars in the 600s cause I'm diabetic. And my cholesterol was crazy and I just I was huge I like blew up because some people it has the opposite effect on me I gained weight a lot of weight a year into recovery my blood sugars were consistently 150 I mean I went from a 12.8 I think a1c to a six point something which is a huge difference. I didn't even change anything except substances. I mean, I didn't diet. I didn't. My cholesterol is in the normal range. Didn't change anything except the substances. The mental health part plays a huge factor for me. And I know that I have to address trauma, PTSD, anxiety, depression. Like I have to deal with all that stuff. Or I'll be right back to where I was before. So, so you had mentioned that you you had lost a, a friend that was close to you, and that was kind of was that the moment for you where you decided that that this recovery thing was going to be something that you were going to do? Uh, was it because you had mentioned you know the statistics of getting out of rehab, and then I feel like every rehab does that, whether they like look to the person and to your left, look to the person on your right you know, one of these, one of these people isn't going to make it or one of these people is going to relapse or whatever. Was that the moment for you that kind of solidified your recovery or what, what was that moment for you where you realized that you were done with the drugs? Honestly, I never had that moment. Like a lot of people do. Um, and that's great. I, I just, you know, I moved back home after that all happened and was going through a divorce and all that stuff. And I was in a custody battle and I was just making it through the day. And I got a sponsor because that's what my lawyer said I needed to do. And I needed to go to 90 meetings in 90 days because my ex was going to try to keep my kids from me. And so I don't know that it was ever a decision at that point, but going to 90 meetings in 90 days changes you. And 
um, just knuckling through when all this stuff happened with my friend and I relapsed, I didn't relapse for a long period of time. Like it happens for some people. I mean, this is like a, I lost her and went south in a week. And then after that week, then I was in this position then I went home and, you know, like, so it's, I was in active addiction the first time for eight years. So it was a, the second time I didn't deal with the withdrawals like I did the first time. I didn't, I wasn't dependent, my body wasn't dependent at that time. I'd had, you know, almost, let's say like five months between, you know, so it was different. It was just, I just like built this thing every day. It was, and, and then another thing is when I had to get a sponsor, I got the hardest one, I think, but the most amazing one. She made me call her every night and every morning. And every night I had to tell her one thing I was grateful for. And at first it was, I'm grateful the day's over and I can go to bed. I'm grateful the day's over and I can go to bed. Like weeks straight, that was, I was grateful for that. And then it switched up a little bit and I'm grateful that it wasn't hot today. You know, I'm grateful I have a bed. And the more I started to look for things I was grateful for, the more I found. And it's amazing that when I stopped being the victim and I stopped being, why did this happen to me? Why did I get addicted to something on a surgery? Like, instead of why me, it, I started looking for things to be grateful for. It changed everything changed and it, it wasn't an instant it was just over time and i didn't even notice it at the time until i looked back and you know started i was supposed to start taking a list of things i was grateful for because we moved we moved along on the process and didn't have enough time to write everything i was grateful for down so that's a long answer to your question but there you go <laughs> No, that's that's totally fine. And I can remember my sponsor having me do a, a similar exercise with the gratitude list and in the beginning not having a whole lot of things that I was grateful for. But, you know, today I'm grateful that he had me do that exercise because now I feel like I have a different outlook on life and I'm I have more gratitude in my life and I see things differently you know, just everyday things that we take for granted. Like you were talking about, I have a bed to sleep in today. Like that's huge. I can't tell you how many times I went to sleep and it wasn't in a bed. You know, there's all these little things that we just take for granted. You know, I'm grateful today that I have a job. I never thought I would say that I'm grateful to have a job because I just want to, I just want to wake up and be rich and never have to work another day in my life. Um, but that's not a realistic expectation. And I'm grateful today that I have a job that I, that I enjoy going to most of the time and, and that I like my coworkers and I like my boss and I enjoy the actual work that I do there. And just all these different things that we take for granted every single day that if, when we stop and we actually look at them, like it's, it's amazing. And, and then it's hard to be in that in that negative space when we're, when we're taking the time out of our day to be grateful for different things. And I think that's part of the reason that 
our sponsors have us do that exercise is at least from my experience and from talking with other people that are in recovery, it's pretty common for us to, to have that negative outlook on life, to have that, uh, that pity party or that poor me kind of mentality. Or if I hadn't gotten caught, like always, always playing the victim, so to speak. And, and it's good for us to, to have a, a perspective change because Life really is beautiful when we take the time to slow down and, and just see all the things that are around us and all the all the things that we've been blessed with. Definitely. I think maybe I'm weird, but I don't want to be rich or make a lot of money. And like, it worries me having large amounts of money. Like, and maybe that's just an anxiety thing from, you know, the years of use, you know, the cash, having cash that you could stuff even though i had a prescription i mean i had to supplement because i was taking so much and it's expensive and so you know like i don't know if whenever i get raises and make more i get a bonus i just end up donating more so i still live on the same amount so if i'm ever rich i'll just be donating more i'll never be rich yeah that, that might not have been the exact right way to phrase that I don't know that I, I want to be rich necessarily, but I, I would like to be able to just do what I want to do with my time. If that makes sense. It's not that I don't love my job or that I'm not grateful for it, but if I wasn't getting paid to be there, I wouldn't be doing that job. You know, I was talking with one of my, with one of my sponsees today and it's like, you know, if I wasn't getting a paycheck, I wouldn't be, doing the service that I do every day. It's, it wouldn't just be me showing up and, and doing that job out of the kindness of my heart. But I would, I like, I would like to think that if I had more free time, I would probably be doing more things like this, you know, trying to, trying to do more podcast episodes and, and trying to give back to the recovery community and be able to do that as a full-time thing, I think would be really awesome. Um, but I'm just not at that point in my life and that's okay. You know, and, uh, and I try to maintain that attitude of gratitude and, and continue to do the the next right thing. You know, I, I show up to work and I try to show up with a good attitude and do what I'm supposed to do and be a good employee. And, you know, those are things that I couldn't do before when I was using, because I just didn't care. I just didn't care. You know, I just was so focused, so self-centered, just thinking about me, 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 me that I couldn't worry about my job performance or about anyone else. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think that's a, a lot of the misconceptions of addiction is people think it's purposeful. Um, mm. You know, it's a selfish disease. And a lot of people think people are pers- purposeful and there's being selfish. And for me, it was pain thing of, you know, but I didn't take it. And within four hours, I was in withdrawal and get really painful because you hypersensitive to pain. And it was, you know, there was a couple of times I tried to withdraw on my own and it's just painful and I couldn't get out of bed and you'd have to take baths and this and couldn't go to work if I, you know, so it was like, it was a endless cycle. If I wanted to work and be responsible, then I had, I couldn't stop and at least that's how I felt at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with you on that. And that's, that's what I think is so hard for people that haven't been through this whole addiction thing to understand is just how 
consuming it is when you're an addict, like how it just completely takes over everything, you know, from your thinking to, it's just all consuming. And that's all, at least for me, like that was all that I could do was think about getting high. How am I going to get my next one? Like how, just like this endless cycle of like get high and then, okay, now how am I going to get high again? And like plotting and scheming and doing whatever I needed to do. And just like this loop of get high and think about how I'm going to get high again. And just like over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and like you said, it is a selfish disease, but people on the outside that haven't experienced it don't understand just like that mental place that we get to where that's all consuming and that literally we don't care about anything else. Like it's, it's terrible to say that, but that's the reality of addiction is we just don't care. A lot of people don't understand the ramifications of after you stop, depending on what substance you're taking. It, it takes a long time for your body to make the chemicals that make you happy and that bring you joy. And it took me a good year to feel happy about anything. and. It wasn't on purpose. It was just, I, you know, I just didn't have the capability. I was on depression medicine and eventually I, I didn't have to take the depression medicine anymore. But at first I did. And I don't think I would have made it, you know, past that first year without depression medicine, honestly. Yeah. Well, we're kind of getting towards the end of our time. So I would love if you wouldn't mind sharing with us what your life looks like now and, and just some of the awesome things that you do to give back to the recovery community and, and what different projects you're involved in. Well, first off, I have my kids in Florida full time. Um, they do go and see their dad in Texas at Christmas and summer, but recovery brought me in custody of my kids. I'm a college graduate and in grad school, um, the president of NAMI Florida. I'm the treasurer of a recovery community organization, the Volusia Recovery Alliance. I'm involved in the Voices Project, which, you know, has mobilized recovery. Um, I'm part of the state organizing team for Florida RAP. Um, I'm on the Mental Health Advocacy Coalition, well, the Florida Mental Health Advocacy Coalition, which is the only grassroots family and um, people with lived experience organization with the lobbyist in the state of Florida. So we're the only group representing people with lived experience or family members in the state for mental health. Everyone else is like clinicians or work in the field. So that's huge to me and super important. Just so much. I mean, I got into an amazing grad school and I told them the truth. Like I told them I was a person in long-term recovery. You know, they asked what I'd bring to the campus um, and, and why they should let me there. And, and I said, I have no idea, but I do know that there's probably somebody that has a family member or these are going to be leaders in businesses and organizations. And they're going to deal with someone in their organization with a substance use disorder. And maybe that I can show them that recovery is possible and ways to handle it so that it doesn't escalate to chaos for that person and and I said I don't I don't know what I can bring you but that's that's what I caught and 
it was enough. That's awesome. And I love, I love that message and, and spreading that message, you know, that we do recover because I think that's a really powerful message and it helps break that stigma that a lot of us live under of that, that old life, once an addict, always an addict. Like I still might have those addict tendencies and, and, and like you talked about, uh, and I was going to ask you what your thoughts are on it. Cause you talked about the red flags that you saw in childhood. And, you know, I, I have similar things where I, I can see behaviors before I ever started using that kind of indicated that I might become an addict but it helps break that stigma, you know, that we can recover, that we do recover. So I guess my, my, my closing question for you is, do you believe that addiction is a lifelong disease? Do you believe that it was something that was present in you before you ever picked up your first drink or drug? I think I definitely had tendencies. I think I had mental health concerns and issues that were undealt with. Um, I don't have a genetic component in my family um, for addiction. Um, and I didn't ever have a problem with other substances. I've maybe smoked weed five times in my whole life. I mean, drinking was never liked it. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know, honestly. But I definitely had addictive behaviors. So, if somebody's listening, that can psychoanalyze me and answer that question for me, feel free. I don't know, but I do know that if I, that I, I believe that I have to pay attention to my recovery now because of the substance use disorder that I, you know, dealt with and that I have to always be aware that I'm one choice away from ending back where I was. I don't believe that I can say, oh, I'm healed and I don't have to continue to do the work because I've seen a lot of people fall because they believe it couldn't happen to them. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a great answer. And I, I appreciate you being honest and vulnerable and, and saying what you said. And I think that that question kind of comes from a, I, cause I have a 12 step background is, is my modality of recovery, but, but I'm familiar with other recovery modalities and, you know, some, some people believe in that idea of the disease of addiction and it being present before they ever use their the substance and then other people uh, don't. So I was just curious to see what your thoughts were on that. And, and like you said, I'm, I, you know, for me, I, I do believe in that model and I can see in my own life, like you said, like those red flags, those things in my life that indicated that I might, have an issue and I can see even now in recovery with a little over seven years, like I can still see some of those addictive tendencies, that obsession and compulsion and some of those things pop up in other areas of my life, you know, whether it be my podcast and being obsessive about recording episodes and editing and making content and that kind of thing, or overeating or whatever fill in the blank like i can still find myself being in that place of obsession and compulsion and and tending and i have i have those tendencies to still act out in different different ways you know it's not to the same extreme that my addiction was but i can still be manipulative or still be deceitful or still do some of those things to 
try to get what I want out of someone. And, and I recognize that today. And, you know, hopefully as I continue in this recovery process, I become a, a better version of myself. And that's, you know, that's really all we can hope for is that we do a little bit better each day than we did the day before. Knowing is half the battle and progress, not perfection. Cause you know, in recovery, we're big on mottos. And you're stealing my closing line from Recovery Revolution Live. Look at you stealing it. Well, I'm sure you're gonna do it. You're gonna say it, but I just wanted to, you know, you're talking about step taking baby steps, and you know, I have a 12 step background too. Um, mine was Celebrate Recovery, so it's different than a than a lot of people talk about. I mean, Celebrate Recovery is huge, but a lot of people, you know, it's not one of the most common. But throughout recovery, I've honest, I've learned a lot about other pathways and respect any pathway that makes someone better in any way, harm reduction, whether it's anything that you do, any of those little steps on the progress is um, good with you. I'm celebrating. I agree. I agree. I definitely, my mind has expanded since I've started this podcast and made connections with other people and learned about so many different, different ways of recovery. And I honestly didn't really know a whole lot about harm reduction when I started it. So yeah, grateful to continue to educate myself and learn about different ways that people are participating in recovery. And, and you, you mentioned my closing line from recovery revolution live, which I don't usually say on this podcast, but you know, since you did bring it up, like we said at the top of the episode, tomorrow is going to be our first Thursday episode. We're going to be live at 7 Central, 8 p.m. Eastern. So tune into Recovery Revolution Live. You can hear more from me, from Ashley, and from Carl, who is not on this episode, but he was on a previous episode. I don't know the episode number off the top of my head, but it was here pretty recently. And uh, we do... We do kind of a long form interview. We have a different guest each week. We're on live. So there's all kinds of little mistakes and flubs and we can interact and get comments and questions from the listeners. And it's a really great time. So if you guys have not been a part of that, I would encourage you to either go to the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash recovery revolution 100 or search for recovery revolution live on YouTube and subscribe to our new YouTube channel. So you can get notifications when we go live on Thursday nights and be a part of the fun. Ashley, I really appreciate you coming on tonight and sharing your story with us, letting everybody know, just letting everybody know about your journey and what it looks like and letting us know that, you know, that, that it's okay to, to struggle and, and that we do recover. Like I really do appreciate you sharing that message and, and being vulnerable and talking about your childhood and feeling insecure and, you know, a lot of things that I think a lot of people can relate with, you know, I can relate to that, that childhood and not feeling that sense of belonging and not feeling like, like I fit in. And I appreciate you being so vulnerable and sharing that with us. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm excited to be able to share that recovery is possible and people will tell you that you can't go back to school you you know you had addiction issues like you you can't get an mba well guess what you can so if someone tells you you can't yeah call me i'll tell you you can
Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us and just being so open and honest and vulnerable with us. I really do appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to our episode tomorrow on Recovery Revolution Live. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.